Dominic, you're alive. What? I just, I thought some listeners who saw the pictures of your squashed bicycle in Amsterdam might have been a bit worried. Yeah. But you are very much alive. I am very much alive. I was nowhere near the tree when it came down on top of my bike, my husband's bike and our spare bike. What happened? Uh, There was a really big storm a few nights ago and loads of trees came down in the city. And it seems like no one was seriously injured. There were a few minor injuries, but um, mainly the trees went for the bikes. Mm. So my poor bike. It was like literally holding up a whole tree on its own, it looked like. It was literally the seat was like holding up the tree like Atlas on his shoulders. But actually, miraculously, all three bikes seem to be like, salvageable oh okay even though they've had a tree sitting on them for a day fingers crossed but uh katie i was gonna ask you if you've had a nice week but you have because you were with me i mean i don't see why you think there's necessarily a link between those two things it might be more like i've had a nice week in spite of being with you joking classic you it was very nice dominic and i actually got to see each other we went on a little mini break to brussels which was very fun working on some special episodes that we're making katie was initiating me into her cult of brussels love and actually i was kind of convinced it seems like a really cool city yeah it's nice right it is nicer than i thought but hey god we've seen each other enough this week so should we get straight to talking about what we're going to do yeah so this week we're going to be chatting to the german writer andre vulkans who has just taken charge of the european cultural foundation which funds all kinds of fun and interesting cultural projects around this whole continent of ours and we're going to be talking to him among other things about why europe needs an answer to hamilton the musical have you actually seen hamilton yeah it was amazing how did you get tickets uh we got them like a gazillion years in advance did you take out a mortgage to pay for them as well yeah Basically, yes, but it's totally worth it. Oh, maybe I'll go. Maybe I'll invest. I'll definitely invest if there's a European version, um, but more about that later. First, I've actually got a commemoration corner for the first time in ages. Oh, it's back. On June the 6th, 1944, the Allied forces began the largest seaborne invasion in history. Some 156,000 troops landed in one day on the beaches of Normandy. The operation was almost thwarted due to bad weather and was initially delayed by one day, but they went ahead on the 6th because of the full moon and the high tides, both of which were vital to the planning of this enormous operation. Uh, It was a huge turning point in the battle to liberate the Nazi-occupied northwest of Europe. And it was eventually a successful campaign as 11 months later, the Nazis had been removed from Europe. But... On the first day, 4,400 Allied forces lost their lives and thousands of French citizens died. So it came at a cost. June the 6th was exactly 75 years ago, last Thursday. World leaders and veterans came together to honour those who lost their lives in the battle. Theresa May said, If one day can be said to have determined the fate of generations to come in France, in Britain, in Europe and the world, that day was the 6th of June, 1944. It's a good reminder of how successful and vital the European project has been since then. And we'll be talking more about that concept, I think, in our interview with Andre Wilkins later in the show. (laughs) 
who's it been a good week for, Dominic? It's been a good week for the Danish Social Democrats who topped the general elections and perhaps more importantly were part of the Red Bloc who came out on top of the Blue Bloc, meaning that the Social Democrats will be able to have a good try at forming a government. Uh, This is where it's probably worth pointing out to our American listeners that in Denmark and actually in much of Europe, the red block refers to the left of centre group and the blue block is the right of centre group. Opposite to the Democrats and Republicans, why didn't everyone just talk to each other and like decide on the colours internationally? I don't want to sound anti-American or anything, but I do think our system is the right one and the Americans are wrong. Okay, we'll uh, pass on that memo. Okay, thanks. Anyway, the party leader, Meta Frederiksen, was very happy that her campaign had been successful. She ran on a platform to improve social welfare, a traditionally social democrat course, but she paired this course with some controversial proposals to take a tougher stance on immigration. This includes the policy to confiscate valuables of arriving asylum seekers in order to offset some of the costs that the arrivals may bring the welfare state initially. Ugh. Ugh, I know. I hate that policy. It just makes me feel so queasy. Yeah, it makes me feel sick as well. This policy and other hardline policies were adopted in the hope that they would win back support from the far-right Danish People's Party. And it's just another example of how effective the far right have been pretty much across Europe, even when they don't have electoral success or when they don't gain power as a governing party, their policies seem to influence and shift the debate. Mm. And Frederickson would argue that it worked. She believes that she won at least in part because of her tougher stance on immigration. And indeed, support for the Danish People's Party, the DPP, has more than halved compared to the last election. They now only got 9% of the vote. Ha! Hmm. But it is important to note that whilst it may seem on the surface like a very good night for the Social Democrats, they actually lost a tiny bit of the popular vote compared to the last election. They dropped 0.4%. They did, however, gain one seat, but that's not a big, like, success. Um, The reason why it's a good night for them is more because the left bloc as a whole saw such a big increase. And the big increases came from the four other smaller left-wing parties, most of which have a more humanitarian approach to the world and two of which saw a 50% increase in their number of seats. So Frederiksen is going to try and form a minority government instead of a coalition, which is a brave move. But she's going to have quite a tightrope to walk considering her immigration policies, which won't sit well with the other left-wing parties. It feels quite weird in general to be talking about an anti-immigration centre-left party. Like, until now, that has not really been a thing. But I do wonder if other social democratic parties in Europe might copy it to some extent, since it does seem to be kind of a vote winner in terms of like stopping the vote bleeding towards the far right. Well, I don't think it's that new necessarily, though. Maybe in Europe it's new. But if you look in New Zealand, uh, Jacinda Ardern has a power sharing agreement with the New Zealand First Party. So she's running a government that's socially democratic, but with quite an anti-immigration party helping prop her up. So it's not the same, um, but it's not so different. But it is fairly effective. And I wonder if like, because politics is shifting so much at the moment anyway, if this whole pro-welfare plus anti-immigration thing might become like a new trend almost. Yeah, so the ex-leader of the SPD, the German Social Democratic Party, Sigmar Gabriel, has actually suggested since this Danish election that maybe the 
German social democrats should also shift to the right on immigration mm. in order to win back some support. So this election result has been watched by other social democrats thinking, oh, maybe this should be a blueprint. But they should be careful because, as I said, the social democrats didn't increase in support. Yeah. So have a look at what these smaller parties did because they're the ones that really grew in support. So it's It would be pretty stupid, I think, to copy the Social Democrats in this case. So a bit of a mixed week then? Bit of a mixed week, yeah. But I think we can still argue. Good week for Meta, who's probably going to become the Prime Minister. Who's it been a bad week for, Katie? Uh, It's been a bad week for global electric scooter companies. So you may or may not know that Paris, where I live, has become increasingly littered over the past year or so with electric scooters, which you could rent. And there are 12 different companies which operate these things. Companies like Lime and Bird and Bolt. And if you're not familiar with how they work, you just scan a little code on the scooter with your phone. And then it costs about 25 cents a minute to zoom around the city wherever you like. And then when you're done, you just leave it wherever you like. And it has become really normal for me now to see scooters just dotted all over the pavement, sometimes in really annoying places, and you just have to kind of swerve around them. And sometimes they fall over. And the other annoying thing about them is that people are really bad at riding them. So I actually have a scar on my hand from this kid who decided to ride really fast the wrong way through traffic. Smart kid. And the other thing that you see is a lot of people riding two people on one scooter on the road with cars and buses, even though these things are really not very stable. And they go really fast. And they go really fast. Like until now, they've been able to go about 25 kilometers an hour, which is speedy. So Parisians are pretty divided about the fact that these companies have been allowed to just leave these scooters, thousands of scooters all over our beautiful streets. There's at least 15,000 of them. Some people think there's actually way more than that. They're really popular with young people, but fuddy-duddies like myself have been a bit less sure about them. I actually reviewed them for the Guardian newspaper when they first came out about a year ago and they took some pictures of me zooming around. I'll post a link to it. So that is the backstory, this increasing rage about these scooters. Why was this week a bad week for the companies? Finally, the mayor of Paris, Anne Hildago, after initially welcoming these companies with open arms and turning Paris into essentially like the biggest testing ground in the world for this kind of transport, she has put her foot down and said, enough is enough, I'm bringing in some rules, Paris can no longer be the wild west of electric scooters. So she's going to change a couple of things. Firstly, you're not going to be able to just park them on the pavement anymore. They're going to have to have like designated parking zones. She is going to cut their speed limit. You'll be glad to hear, Dominic, to 20 kilometers an hour, which is about five less than before. And she's told the companies that they're not going to be allowed just to have as many as they wanted, which for me is the really bad news for the companies because they'll be able to make less money than they did before. Uh, Some of these companies have got thousands and thousands of these scooters on the streets of Paris. I think that part of the problem is that the mayor has just been quite experimental over this whole thing and has been like, yeah, let's just test it out without really any regulation or anything. Um, So compared to other cities like London and Barcelona and even in America, places like Seattle, where there's like a total ban on this kind of floating electric scooter. And uh, cities like Madrid have also been a bit more careful. They've only let three of these companies in. Annie Hidalgo has just let these companies come to Paris and kind of do whatever they want over the last year. And Parisians have become very irate about it. 
I first saw them in Auckland in New Zealand where there was just one company at the time and they were actually really fun to play with. I quite like them. But when we were in Brussels earlier this week with Katie and a producer, Katz, who's working with us on the special episodes, Katz was, had never seen them before and was quite shocked she was. by all these scooters, some of them just like lying on the floor. Katie was being a very good citizen and picking them all up if they were lying down. No, but it's funny. I wouldn't have stopped if Katz hadn't been so shocked by it because I am so used to seeing them now. I would have just walked straight past it if she hadn't been like, what is that? And uh, Katz actually tried one out for the first time. Katie uh, let her use her account. And it was quite terrifying to see someone use it for the first time because they're a bit difficult to use initially to get like the hang of. And they go really fast to the extent that Katie, as Kat zoomed off into the distance, was shouting, we're not insured. This is your own responsibility. We probably should have had that discussion before she set merrily off on that thing. Probably. Um, but I think it sounds like a good week for the whole of Paris that the mayor has done this because whilst they can be fun, they do need regulating. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I mean, she's been tinkering. The mayor has been tinkering with the rules a little bit over the last few months. And she made the company sign this kind of good behavior agreement a few months ago which did absolutely nothing and then more recently she brought in some fines for bad scooter parking if you get caught so we'll see if this new crackdown actually amounts to a much more proper crackdown personally i think she will have to drastically reduce the number of scooters on the streets if she's going to prevent like a kind of mini uprising or like a new french revolution amongst prisons who just hate these things i mean presumably you could sue the company for the scar on your hand do you think yeah, let's do it as a test case. Great. We'd be open to uh, settling out of court uh, <laughs> companies, so please get in touch. So as mentioned, we are making some special episodes of the podcast, which we're going to be running the rest of the year. One of them you might have already heard, the first episode in our Bursting the Bubble series a couple of weeks back, which explained in a fun way, I hope, how the European Parliament actually works, because Dominic and I kind of had no idea about it, even though we live in Europe and can vote for this thing. Uh, if you haven't heard it already, check it out. It sounds quite different from what we usually do. And we had a lot of fun making it. And we're going to be working our way through the other EU institutions at various points over the coming months, trying to get to grips as non-EU experts with how the kind of machinery of the EU actually works uh, in a fun way. And we're doing this with the help of the European Cultural Foundation, which is based in Amsterdam. And they are an organisation that fund lots of fun, interesting cultural projects around Europe, like festivals and music projects, really cool things. And they have a new boss, the German writer André Wilkins, who has been thinking about Europe for a really long time. He's written a book about it, among other things. He's just a really thoughtful person about culture in Europe and why it's so important in general. So we thought we would give him a ring and talk about it. I grew up in East Germany and the moment the wall came down, I set off in an old Lada car to Brussels and did an internship in the commission. The first person I meet is now my wife, who is a British woman. So everyone, I think, has somehow a European story. They just have to discover it. I actually wanted to start maybe by asking you about your childhood in East Germany, actually. It's a big question, but how much have you seen Europe change since those early years in East Germany? Tremendously, of course. I mean, if you think about it, Europe was divided by the Cold War and the Iron Curtain. In my little um, world, that meant, I mean, I, I couldn't travel to the West. I mean, all these things like 
London, Paris, Venice, all these things were things I only knew through books and um, watching West German television. And I, I had to assume that I would never see these things in my lifetime. Since then, as you say, Europe has grown positively in many ways. But in more recent years, there's been a bit of a sense of crisis. Was there a light bulb moment recently when you realized that Europe was starting to go in a troubling direction? For me, the, the light bulb moment was in was it 2005 or 2006. The European Union came up with the idea we need a, a constitution. And in the Netherlands and France, it was rejected in referenda. And for me, that was sort of a light bulb moment where I thought the people are turning against uh, Europe. Until then, it was relatively plain sailing. To what extent do you now think that Europe is, is experiencing an existential crisis? Now we have a situation where you actually have what I call a battle for Europe, because you have forces inside Europe which want to demolish the Europe we have built after the Second World War, which is a, is a peaceful, cooperative union where we take decisions together. And they, they want to destroy this and go back to the sort of uh, Britain first, Italy first, Hungary first. They really want to demolish what I would consider one of the biggest achievements of the 20th century. And what, in your view, can and should we do about it? Sometimes if there's a crisis, that's also an opportunity. So I, I see the possibility that this sort of contested space of Europe provides the opportunity for the pro-Europeans to get active and get imaginative in making their case for Europe. And maybe one of, one of the examples was actually at the beginning of the year, you had the big fireworks in London. The mayor, Sadi Khan, put uh, the European flag on a London eye and announced in whatever 10 languages uh, London is open. And I thought this is a, was a really a great example to play also with Europe in a almost subversive way. This is also brings us maybe to another issue. What can culture do in, in, in these times? And I think it has to um, it has to challenge. Yeah. So could you talk a bit more about that? How do you see the role of culture in this battle for Europe? Why is it so important? We are not good in telling the story of Europe and we, we should do that better. I mean, the Americans tell the story, their own story in great ways, including in musicals with Hamilton and so on. I mean, if you painted or described the Europe of today to someone in 1945 after the war or before the war came down, it would have sounded like an utopia. So we have to describe the next utopia for Europe. And there I see arts and culture in the driving seat. Yeah. Do you think that we need a European answer to Hamilton, Andre? Is that something that you're willing to fund? I'm just asking for a friend. <laughs> well, I, if someone comes to me and say, I have it, um, I don't know what it's called, Schumann or Monet. <laughs> and um, given that, you know, my, my daughter is trying to get tickets for Hamilton and hasn't achieved it yet. And, you know, listening to all this and I'm seeing why? She knows American history probably much better than European history simply by um, having watched this thing for, I don't know, not 50 times, but maybe 20. If we can achieve that, please come to me and uh, we will find a way. Great.
Well, I mean, it's kind of why we set up this podcast, because I personally realized that I was way more interested in American politics. And I listened to all these podcasts about American politics, mm -hmm. and I was ignoring what was happening closer to home. So yeah, I see the parallel with Hamilton as well. Um, I was wondering if you could give us an example of some successful European cultural figures who you think are fighting this battle effectively. Well, I, I start with maybe a relatively conventional one, Wolfgang Tillmans, mm -hmm. photographer, German photographer, mainly living in the UK. I think it was the first non-British artist who won the Turner Prize. And uh, after Brexit, he um, even before the referendum, he made a case for Britain remaining in Europe. And that made him, who was before just uh, sort of an ordinary artist uh, made him an activist who's using his influence, his thinking um, to reach audiences which hadn't been reached and doing it also in a, uh, you know, he, he, he just does it. He's doing his posters, he's hanging them in windows, he's convincing people, he's just doing it. And I, I think, I mean, I like that approach very much. But um, maybe a more unconventional, but on the, on the other hand, conventional one is the Eurovision Song Contest. And you, you can have different views on the artistic value of it. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it managed to become the second biggest TV event in the world after the Oscars. Is it really? That's amazing. Yeah, it is, is huge. And um, whatever people think of Europe and whether they understand the European Commission or not, that may be for many people the only day in the year where they at least think about Europe. I think that that is a good story for the role of culture. I want to play devil's advocate for a moment and ask you, like, what do you say to people that think that money from Europe uh, or from funds should be spent on making the lives of people who have suffered economically from increasing globalization to the people who've been left behind instead of culture? Well, I mean, sure, of course. When you go into detail, the EU budget is around 1% of GDP of the whole of Europe. So it's tiny. But of this tiny little budget, most of the money, I think probably 80 or even more percent, goes into subsidies for agriculture and for regional development. All these things you see on a motorway or whatever. And then there's a sort of 20% left. And a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of this is going into culture. Most of EU money goes into exactly the kind of things you describe where that works particularly well. That's a question to be Consider, but I don't see a danger at the moment that a lot of money is going into into culture at the expense of supporting um, deprived areas. Thank you to Andre for taking the time to talk to us. So as we said, he's the director of the European Cultural Foundation. They recently had a funding call entitled Democracy Needs Imagination. And we were very lucky to receive a grant to produce two special series, one which Katie talked about earlier, the other of which we're going to be announcing very soon. It's a bit different and quite creative and taking us in a narrative nonfiction route for a little bit. Oh, look at you and your fancy radio terms. I know, right? Um, 
that will be appearing in a few months. But in the meantime, as Katie says, check out our first episode from the Bursting the Bubble series, looking at the EU Parliament. Katie really did work some magic in making an episode that manages to talk about the European Parliament without putting people to sleep. Oh, thanks. Talking of putting people to sleep, I've got a nice happy ending to lull you into a peaceful rest. Okay. What if people are listening to this like in their cars? Well, no, it's actually not so sleepy. I'll speak I'll speak about it. I'll try and find a healthy middle ground for the people who need to stay awake for driving and the people who need to go to sleep. Half sleepy. Our happy ending this week comes from a story Katie shared on our Patreon supporters Facebook group. Thank you, Katie, for your contribution to this week's episode. Oh, you're welcome. Is this sorry? Is this all I've done? Yes. It's not like editing this show matters or anything. No, nah. All right. So, using animals in circuses, what do we think of that, Katie? Not good. Bad. We don't like it. It's mean. The animal welfare problems are becoming more and more difficult to ignore in the cases of circuses, particularly traveling circuses. Animals often live in cramped, inappropriate environments and sometimes perform uncomfortable acts in front of intimidating crowds of humans like us. I'm sure there's a whole spectrum of the way you can treat an animal in a circus, but in essence, it's problematic. And in fact, the UK government recently announced that they would be bringing in a bill to ban wild animals in circus performances. Oh, I thought we had one already. We've got a bill that limits it and means you have to have a special license. But oh. Michael Gove, the Environment Secretary, the current Environment Secretary and wannabe Conservative Party leader, he announced that he's going to propose a bill to completely ban it. Mm-hmm. Uh, So the tide is turning away from this long-held tradition and one famous German circus group, Circus Roncalli, didn't feel comfortable with having animals in their shows but did feel a bit sad that this crucial element of circus performance would be lost. So what did they do? They did exactly what they taught you to do at journalism school, Katie. They did? Yes, they thought outside the box. Oh. They did teach you that at journalism school, didn't they? Or did you miss that day? I, I don't know what they taught me at journalism school, but apparently <laughs> I'm a journalist now. So that's good. Rude. Um, and yeah, with the magical power of technology and some marvellous projectors, which they talked about a lot in the article I read. Was it sponsored content? I'm not sure. Mm. Um, they have created a show that uses holograms of animals to create magical moving images of the animals so that no real life animals have to suffer and be there but the audience still get the magic of animal performance you could argue that this kind of screams of a dystopian future when all these beautiful animals are extinct and we can only use computers to recreate them oh god but hey at least no animals are getting hurt in the process and the images do actually look pretty beautiful so i will post the link in the show notes go and check it out just to be clear, they didn't teach us how to make holograms at journalism school, but maybe they should have done. It's the future of journalism. Future of everything, apparently. Soon there will be no uh, journalists actually going to report 
from the field they'll just like post a hologram of it like they do with politicians nowadays don't they yeah so uh Jean-Luc Mélenchon the French firebrand leftist leader he became quite famous during the 2017 election campaign for kind of zapping in by hologram to like places all over France to just appear on stage it was pretty cool and Star Warsy. there are also some I think quite uncomfortable examples of this in the Middle East where some politicians used holograms instead of traveling to places where it would have been unsafe for them to travel to which maybe in some situations is okay but in other situations has some Mm. kind of unsettling implications anyway how have we got diverted to talking about politician holograms i thought this was a nice happy ending about elephants yeah sorry it was meant to put you to sleep and have nightmares also i went to see an amazing piece of dance this week that did have an animal in it and it had just had a dog in it very briefly didn't have to do any tricks and I thought oh my god if that dog hadn't been in the show the show would have been half as good the dog was amazing go and see Anna Teresa de Kiersmacher's piece the Brandenburg Concertus it's incredible how did you know that the dog was having a good time I don't know that the dog was having a good time but it sporadically barked quite a lot in a really funny way sounds like he might have been trying to cry for help maybe (laughs) don't feel so good about it now do you no i didn't feel so good about it then either but i did think it was really cute i think it would have been better with a hologram dog okay i'll suggest it to her That's all we've got time for this week, but thank you for tuning in once again to the Europeans. Katie and I are very grateful that people still seem to be happy to listen to us natter about Europe every week. If you really like the show, then maybe you would consider writing us a review on Apple Podcasts if you're one of those people that still uses Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us and also just makes our day when we get a review. People still seem to be writing them and they're still writing really nice things. So thank you, nice people. Um, The other nice people in our lives are our generous Patreon supporters who were actually treated this week to a very nice photo of you, Dominic, holding the new microphone that we've been able to buy thanks to their support. Um, It's a little bit phallic, this new microphone. (laughs) I don't know how I feel about it. Yeah, it's true. It is quite phallic, but um, it also is really good. Sounds great. So... That's the more important thing, I'm afraid. It's a very important thing. Um, If you would like to help us keep the show running, you can join our very generous Patreon supporters for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. And in general, if you would like to send thoughts, comments, or even lyrics to a new Europe-based musical, which we can send on to Andre, uh, you can reach us on all kinds of social media platforms. We are on Twitter at EuropeansPod, on Instagram at EuropeansPodcast, and you can drop us an email, EuropeansPodcast at gmail.com. We will be back next week with more wonderful stories from around the continent. But in the meantime, have a good week, everyone, and toodaloo. Cheers. Cheers.